Okay, turn with me to Matthew 6. When I was last here, it's been four Sundays since I taught. Um, we were studying Matthew 6, 19 to 24, dealing with money and how we handle our money and wealth. And uh, uh, I finished most of it, but I know it's been a month since I taught, so I know that uh, you don't remember most of what I taught. So uh, I'm going to do a significant amount of review this morning, and then I will finish it up. If we have time, we'll move on into the next passage, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, in teaching us in this passage how to deal with our luxuries, remember I said verses 19 to 24 deal with our luxuries wealth, whereas verses 25 on deals with necessities, you know, the things we have to have to survive. And Jesus, so Jesus addressed both groups that were sitting in front of him, those who were wealthy and those that were poor. And in, he starts with those that have money, and in teaching us how to deal with our luxuries, he presents three choices. There are two treasuries, there are two visions, and there are two masters that he gives us in this text. In verses 19 to 21, we have to make a choice as to whether we lay up our treasure on earth or in heaven. Uh, in verses 22 and 23, we make a choice of whether we're going to see and live in light or whether we're going to see and live in darkness. And in verse 24, we make another choice about whether our master will be God or our master will be money. Uh, because it can't be both. So the Lord really gives us three choices about what we'll do if we're going to properly handle our wealth. So we began by looking at verses 19 to 21. So let's read them again. We see an earthly treasury or a heavenly treasury. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, he says there at the beginning of verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. What Jesus is talking about here is not the necessities of life that we use to live every day, but that which we just pile up and accumulate. It's not that we uh, that which we use to meet the basic needs of our lives, uh, food, clothing, and shelter. Nor is it that which we use to assist the poor or to give to the Lord's work. Uh, it's not the money we set aside and save for future needs or for making wise investments so that we can be better stewards of God's money in days to come. Rather, he's talking about that which is stockpiled and amassed just for our own selves. Uh, he's talking about luxury. He's talking about that which is beyond what we can possibly use. Uh, it's all those things you don't use that you just stash somewhere and keep saying, oh, they're so valuable. And so you just keep them. Uh, and so the Lord is not, but he's not looking down on ownership of property and possessions here. Uh, the things that we need for life. He's not talking about what we have. He's talking about the attitude towards what we have. Uh, it's right to seek needed things. It's right to provide for your family. It's right to plan for the future. It's right to make wise investments. It's right to help the poor. It's right to have enough to carry on your business. But it's wrong to be greedy. It's wrong to be covetous. And so we come right back to the glory of God and the life of those around 
you and me and in his kingdom. And then we have a right to all of it. But if I am seeking after it to stockpile it, to hoard it, to keep it, to amass it, just so I can indulge myself in it, that's sin. And you're right back to dealing with the attitude again. It isn't an issue of whether or not you have money. It's the issue of what you do with what you have. Uh, Colossians 3.5 says greed amounts to idolatry. Uh, and that's what Jesus has in mind here. Money becomes your God. Uh, things we possess can become idols in our lives, can't they? Uh, and so Jesus is saying, don't pile up stuff. Uh, the selfish accumulation of goods, extravagant luxury, breeds hard-heartedness towards the cause of God. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. We said last time that in the Middle East, there were biblical times, wealth was basically kept in three commodities, garments, grain, and gold. They all start with the letter G. Uh, all the garments were made by hand. The materials themselves were woven by hand. So clothing was often quite expensive. Anyone who had more than two sets of clothing was considered wealthy. Uh, most people, many of the, the poor people, only had one set of clothing. Uh, and one of the primary materials out of which they made clothing was wool. Uh, but they had a problem with wool. What is it? Moths. Moths. Moths love to eat wool clothing. As I told you last time, it's not the adult moths that eat wool clothing. It's their larvae. They, they lay their eggs in there and the larvae hatch and they eat the wool. Um, and in biblical times, they didn't have mothballs. Uh, they didn't have pesticides. Uh, they couldn't prevent that from happening. Uh, even the richest people had difficulty keeping and maintaining their woolen garments because of the moths. And so the moths easily damaged them so that they were rendered worthless or without value. Another way they stored their wealth was in grain. Um, remember the story of the rich man that said, oh, I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger ones. Uh, he was, his wealth was in grain. And we mentioned that word rust there in the verse. Um, and I, I told you that despite the fact that it says rust there and other versions have continued that, there is neither biblical nor non-biblical evidence for this word to be translated that way. The word means eating or consuming. And uh, uh, the, the best lexicons will tell you rust isn't a good translation. Uh, so the, a couple of the modern translations have chosen to translate it in a more appropriate way. Uh, one, the NIV uses the word vermin. Uh, the Lexham English Bible uses consuming insect. Uh, so the problem with storing grain then and now continues to be mice, rats, and worms, all kinds of vermin. Uh, they eat it. In fact, according to the government sources, about 20% of the world's stored grain is eaten or contaminated by uh, rats and mice every year. Uh, so... Uh, the problem is you can have all of your wealth tied up in grain, but those little critters are going to get in there and eat it up. Uh, then the third commodity they put their treasure in was gold or precious metal. And of course, the problem with that was the thieves broke in and stole it. And so your garments would be eaten by moths, your grain would be eaten by whatever kind of insect or vermin got to it, and your gold would be taken by thieves. Nothing you treasure up here on this earth is safe and secure. But even if we manage to keep our 
possessions perfectly secure during our entire lives. We're certainly separated at it when we die, from it when we die. Uh, you're going to leave every bit of it here. And since the earthly treasure is subject to being destroyed or stolen, Jesus says instead, we ought to, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he takes it a step further. He points out in verse 21 that a person's most treasured possessions and their deepest motives and desires are inseparable. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Either they will be earthly or they will both be heavenly. It's impossible to have one on earth and one in heaven. Uh, Jesus is not saying that if we put our treasure in the right place, our heart will then be in the right place. Rather, he's saying that the location of our treasure indicates where our heart already is. Spiritual problems are always heart problems. And so as always, the heart must be right first. In fact, if the heart is right, Everything else in life falls into its proper place. And so in terms of spiritual life, you're always dealing with a heart attitude because it's out of the heart that man operates. As Proverbs 23, 7 says about a man, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. Uh, so our heart has to be right. And if our heart is right, then everything else will be right. Uh, if the heart is right, we will not store up for ourselves treasures on earth like the Pharisees did. Rather, we will deal with our treasure, which God has graciously given us by investing it in his eternal kingdom. Now, what is this treasure in heaven that we're to store up? What's he really talking about here? Well, simply stated, folks, it's our money, our luxury, our wealth. Uh, let me show you this. First uh, Timothy 6, 17. Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. In other words, don't let your riches make you proud. Don't trust in them. Instead, trust in God who gives us our wealth. Now watch verses 18 and 19. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The call upon God on our lives regarding our luxuries and our wealth is that we distribute and we share as opposed to hoarding it and stockpiling it. Uh, and that's how Paul says we lay a good foundation for the future. That's when we're in heaven. What scripture was that? That was uh, 1 Timothy 6, starting with verse 17 and running through 19. Uh, and he says we do that so that we lay a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. That is all the fullness of our eternal life. So the question is how attached are we to the money and things we possess? Uh, are we willing to give up our earthly treasure in order to gain heavenly treasure? If you remember, we looked at Luke 16. And in Luke 16... Jesus gives a very self-evident statement in verse 10. He says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. What he's saying is that your circumstances don't determine faithfulness. Your character does. It's never about circumstances. It's whether you're looking at heaven or looking at earth. It's whichever perspective has captured your heart. Dealing with money 
with a heavenly view is never a matter of how much you have. It's a matter of integrity and spiritual character. If you're interested in investing in eternity, you do it. If you're not, you don't. To say it another way, verse 11 of Luke 16, Therefore, <coughs> if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Jesus is saying, you think God is going to reward you in eternity if you frittered away and wasted your stewardship of what he gave you in this life? And then he zaps them in verse 12 there. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Uh, he moves to the fact that the money you have isn't even yours. It's a stewardship. You don't own what you think you own. Who owns it? God owns it. You're just a steward. It all belongs to God. If you haven't been faithful in using that which belongs to God, then who's going to give you that which is your own? Which is another way of saying you're also going to forfeit your eternal reward. So look at your own heart. How faithful are you in how you use your money, understanding that this has implications for your eternal reward. And if you're not faithful with that, you'll forfeit that which is really could really belong to you in eternity. And now back in our text in Matthew 6, verse 13. Uh, well, no, verse 13 of Luke 16. I'm sorry. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Uh, the Greek verb that translated serve there means to work as a slave. It, we're not talking about an occasional act of obedience. We're, we're, talk, we're not talking about a part-time job. We're not talking about eight to five. Uh, a slave had no time that was his own. He had no possession that didn't belong to his master. He had no movement in life that was not subject to his master. And in the same way, you cannot serve God and wealth. It can't be done. You're going to hate one and love the other. You're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. So make your choice. Either you're going to serve God. That means you're going to take your wealth and invest it in what honors God. Or you're going to serve money. And that means you're going to take it and use it for what you want here in this life. But you can't do both. You have to decide. Conflicting demands will produce conflicting emotions and attitudes. Well, that's, that's where we stopped last time. Uh, with these two treasuries. Now let's start, pick up with verse 22, 23, and see whether we're seeing the light or seeing only darkness. It says, the light is the lamp of the body. <clears throat> so then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, so far he's been talking about your heart. And he wants us to have our heart to have a single-minded fixation and a wholehearted devotion to the kingdom of God so that our treasure is there, our love is there, our passion is there, our investment is there, our all is there. And then he illustrates that with the eye, which becomes an illustration of the heart. The, the eye is, is like the lamp of the body. When we can see with our eyes, our body is filled with the light that comes in from the world by, 
which they perceive and understand what's in their vision. But if your eye is dark, it's black. There's no light that comes in. You perceive nothing. And that's the way it is with the heart. If your heart is focused on God, it lights your entire spiritual being. But if your heart is focused on material things toward the treasure of the world, the blinds just come down on your spiritual perception and you do not see spiritually as you ought to. Jesus takes a physical illustration and he says that the eye is like a window. If that window is clean and clear, the light floods the body. But if the window is blacked out, no light enters. This is a spiritual metaphor, but there's a richness here that I, I don't want you to miss. Look at the word clear or healthy or good, depending on your translation. I, I want you to see something that I think is fascinating about that word. The word was used in the Septuagint to mean singleness of purpose, undivided loyalty. And so the King James Version translators translated it single. And that fits perfectly with the idea that he's been saying about having a heart which is singly focused on honoring God with our wealth. Uh, we are to be wholly dedicated to serving God rather than our money. But in addition to that thought, the rabbis taught that an evil eye represented selfishness and a good eye represented generosity. And they got that idea from the Old Testament. I'll show you that in a minute. So being full of light is equivalent to being generous. And that also fits perfectly with what Jesus said about storing up treasures in heaven by being generous with our wealth in giving to God's causes. In fact, other forms of this Greek word were used that way in the New Testament. In James 1.5, it says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously, another form of the same word, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So there it's translated generously. In Romans 12.8, Paul says that those who give are to do so with liberality. Again, the same, a different form of the same word. And in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is discussing the financial gift that the Corinthians had gathered to be sent to the poor Jerusalem church, and he commended them for their obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. So various forms of this word are translated as either sincere or generosity or liberality in several different places in Scripture. So Jesus is saying that if your heart, is rep as represented by the eye, is singly focused on God and is liberally generous with your wealth, your whole spiritual life will be flooded with spiritual understanding or light. Isn't that a great truth? It's amazing what you find when you dig into the meaning of the words in the text. Uh, you know, there are people who come here every week to Lakeside, but they don't seem to change. They never seem to grow spiritually. They don't seem to love the word. They just stay the same way all the time. And when I see someone like that, they never seem to understand what's going on. 
and they never seem to, uh, to perceive spiritual realities. And I wonder to myself sometimes if it isn't because they are so focused on earthly matters and so oriented towards earthly treasures that the spiritual blinds are down and they have no spiritual light at all. Uh, to put it another way, until you take care of your view of money in your life, you'll never be able to deal with spiritual realities. That's exactly what we saw that Jesus said in Luke 16, 11. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? What Jesus is saying here is that the issue is bigger than we think. Verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That word bad means evil or wicked. Uh, it's the evil eye of selfishness, like the rabbis said. It was a Jewish colloquialism, which meant selfish or grudgingly. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 15, where it talks about releasing a slave during the year of Jubilee, it says, Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your heart uh, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother and you give him nothing, then he may cry to the Lord against you and it'll be a sin to you. Uh, so if you are ungenerous, stingy, and you begrudge him his freedom and refuse to give him anything to help him on his way, you have an evil eye towards him. Uh, in Proverbs 23.6, my New American Standard Bible says, do not eat the bread of a selfish man. But the King James Version translated it Literally, eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Uh, in other words, don't eat a bite of someone's food if they begrudge you every bite. Uh, how about Proverbs 28, 22? It says, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. In other words, selfish, ungenerous people chase riches but don't realize that they're going to end up with nothing. And so then Jesus says, you have two treasures, one on in heaven, one on earth. Wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart will be. And if your treasure is in heaven, you're going to have a generous spirit. And that generous spirit is like a seeing eye that floods your spiritual life with perception. But if your treasure is on earth, you're going to see nothing because you'll be blinded by the darkness of your greed and covetousness, and you'll see absolutely nothing. And if that's the case, the end of verse 23 says, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He's saying that the person who is materialistic and greedy is spiritually blind because he has no way of recognizing true light, and so he thinks he has light when he does not. What he thinks to be light is really darkness. And because of his self-deception, how great is the darkness. In other words, that person really isn't a true follower of Christ. It reminds me of what John said in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. That would include wealth and riches and money, wouldn't it? Of course. And then John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. 
not in him. In other words, he's not even a true believer. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that's moral corruption, and the lust of the eyes, that's mental corruption, and the boastful pride of life, that's materialistic corruption, is not from the Father, but is of the world. It's from the world. The people of the world, unbelievers, are characterized by those three behaviors. And one of them is materialism. Boasting about what you've gained in terms of wealth and riches and things in this life and being stingy and greedy. And Jesus says that those who are characterized by such are filled with darkness, self-deceit, unbelief. So then the call is to exclusive heavenly mindedness, devotion to God, an undivided storing up of treasure in heaven. Let me simplify the whole thing in one statement. How you handle your money is a sure barometer of your spiritual condition. How you handle your money is a sure barometer of your spiritual condition. That's the message of verses 22 and 23. And so you have a choice between storing up treasure in a heavenly treasury or an earthly treasury and a choice between living in the light or living in darkness. And how you use your money and wealth reveals which ones you're choosing. Well, finally, we come to the final choice, which is this. Which master will you serve? God or wealth? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, it seems like every time someone teaches on this verse, someone's bound to say, well, that's not true. I have two jobs with two different bosses, so I serve two masters. Or they'll say, you know, my mother-in-law is living with us, so I have two masters, my wife and my mother-in-law. <laughs> Uh, but that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. Do you see the word serve here? It's the same Greek verb that we I mentioned in Luke 16, 13, which means to work as a slave. It isn't talking about working for two different bosses on two different jobs. And after listening or, or having to listen to your wife and mother-in-law to give you instructions, it, that doesn't count either. Jesus is saying that you can't be a slave to two masters because by, by slavery, by definition, means single ownership and full-time service. A slave was not considered to be a person. A slave was considered to be a thing, a tool. They had no rights. A master could beat a slave, kill a slave, sell a slave. Slave was a living tool, no different than a plow or a cow or anything else. To be a slave was to be the property of a master, to be constantly, totally, entirely, 100% devoted to obedience to that one master. It would be utterly impossible to serve in that way for two different masters. That's the illustration used in Romans 6. 16 to 22, when Jesus, uh, when, when Paul talks about how we have been set free from slavery to the law and are now slaves of righteousness. He says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, 
And he says that having been freed from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. And then verse 22 of that passage, he says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So because we are his slaves, we're no longer the slave of sin. And God can only be served with entire and exclusive devotion. We can't claim that Christ is our Lord if our allegiance is to any thing or anyone else, including ourselves. And when we know God's will, but resist obeying it, we give evidence that our loyalty is other than to him. You can no more serve two masters at the same time as you, than you can walk two directions at the same time. You'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Inevitably, you will regard those two masters differently from one another. And then Jesus concludes with these words, you cannot serve God and wealth. Or to read it with the meaning that is implied in the Greek, it is impossible to be enslaved to God and enslaved to wealth at the same time. The word cannot there is a very strong word that signifies sheer impossibility. Bible scholar Leon Morris writes this. He says, quote, it is possible to devote oneself wholly to the service of God, and it is possible to desert, devote oneself wholly to the service of money. But it is not possible to devote oneself wholly to the service of both. The stark alternatives make it clear that the service of God is no part-time affair, but something that calls for one's fullest devotion, end quote. So God can only be served with single-mindedness. And if you try to split your allegiance between both him and money, you'll either hate him or hate money. You can't love and serve both equally. The order of the two masters are diametrically opposed. The orders of those two masters. Uh, the one commands you to walk by faith. The other says walk by sight. One calls you to be humble. The other calls you to be proud. One calls you to love light. The other says love darkness. One says to set your affections on things above. The other says set your affections on the things of the earth. One calls you to look at the things that are unseen and eternal. The other calls you to look at things which you see that are temporal. One of those masters says... Be anxious for nothing. The other pulls you into all kinds of anxiety and fears. And so they're diametrically opposed. You can't serve them both. J.C. Ryle, the great evangelical Anglican bishop of the 1800s, once said, singleness of purpose is one great secret of spiritual prosperity. That's absolute focus. It's that absolute focus that makes you spiritually rich. And would you rather be eternally rich or temporally rich? It's a matter of which master you serve. When the Israelites were taking control of the land, it was Caleb who at the age of 85 said, I have followed the Lord my God fully. David put it this way in Psalm 16:8. I have set the Lord continually before me. 
Where's the safest place then to put your treasure? Where you're going to have the clearest spiritual light and where you're going to be able to serve the right master. The possession of wealth is not a sin, but it is a great responsibility. John Calvin said, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. That's the issue, plain and simple. Who will be our master? Our money or our God? That's the issue. Well, that brings us to the end of this passage. Before I move along to the next one, are there any questions, thoughts, insights from you? Yes, Jim. Well, you could tie in your relationship and your thoughts and so on to the church. Mm -hmm. Right in with all that because, you know, the church is our life, so to speak. We make our decisions. It's our family for sure. Yeah, we mm -hmm. certainly make our decisions based on considerations of something in church. I would hope so. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, yeah. you know, you talk to so many people that don't. Oh, yeah, we have, uh, we have the whole American evangelical culture has largely become uh, a group of commercial shoppers who just shop around. Yeah. You know, so I understand leaving a church for the right reasons. I don't understand people who jump from one to the next looking for what programs got this and what they got for me there and what they got over here and everything else. Yes, Mark? Well, Robbie Zachariah, we, we, we probably have a, he was, in, he was an intellectual Christian kind of guy. Uh, we, we probably, uh, our esteem for him is uh, whatever has been uh, degraded in the last, Extremely so. Yeah, about his carrying on, but. Uh, he said that, and I was remembering, he said the bane of the age is material, extreme materialism, sensuality, and religious cynicism. And I thought that those were, that really characterizes this age, you know, extreme, you're just discussing money, and we're talking about material goods here. It, it, we are characterized by being extreme materialists, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. capitalism. So it's mm -hmm. really a, something to really do some thinking about, really, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. pondering. Yes. So what are they searching around for? Feel good? Yeah. Whatever 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 fills their their emotional needs at the time. So. Well, let's look at the next passage. Spend our last time starting starting on it. And I when I say starting, I mean that literally because I haven't finished the passage yet. I've only got notes on part of the passage. So, he says, let's read it. He says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, 
Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, as we said in, as we studied the previous verses, Jesus focused on our attitude towards luxury, towards wealth. But in these verses, he focuses on our attitude towards what people eat, drink, and wear, are the necessities of life that we absolutely have to have in order to exist. Uh, the first passage is particularly directed to the rich. The second is particularly directed to the poor. Be, both being rich and being poor have their own special spiritual problems. The rich are tempted to trust in their possessions, and the poor are tempted to doubt God's provision. Uh, the rich are tempted to become self-satisfied in the false security of their riches, and the poor are tempted to worry and fear in the false insecurity of their poverty. But you see, whether you're wealthy or poor, or somewhere in between, your attitude towards material possessions is one of the most reliable marks of your spiritual condition. Man is a earthly creatures naturally concerned about earthly things. Uh, in Christ, we're recreated as heavenly beings. And as children of our Heavenly Father, our concerns ought to be now to primarily focus on heavenly things, even while we're still on this earth. Uh, Christ sends us into the world to do his work, just as the Father sent him into the world to do the Father's work. But as Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, we're not to be of the world, just as Jesus uh, was not of the world, while on earth we're not to be of the world, even though we're here. We're not to be of the world. And so then one of the supreme tests of our spiritual life is how we relate to those two worlds, and specifically the issue of money and finances. Did you realize that 16 out of Jesus' 38 parables that are recorded in Scripture deal with money. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament deals with money. Scripture contains about 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 on faith, but over 2,000 on money. So the believer's attitude towards money and possessions is a determinative factor in terms of his or her spiritual health. We live in an age of unabashed materialism, as Mark just said, of greed, ambition, success, prestige, self-indulgence, shameless consumption. In his book, The Emerging Order, God in the Age of Scarcity, Jeremy Rifkin, one of the foremost economists in the world, said this, emphasis on continuous economic growth is a black hole that has already sucked up a majority of the world's critical non-renewable resources. Now, Professor Rifkin is not a believer. In fact, he's one of the proponents of the Green New Deal. But interestingly, 
he makes the closing observation, listen to this, that, quote, the only solution to our approach to life is the reemergence of the evangelical Christian ethic, which is the ethic of unselfishness and low consumption, end quote. And then he concludes, listen to this, that the only alternative to that is a constrictive totalitarian dictatorship that will control our society and our personal lives for us. In other words, the only approach he sees that would counteract the need for a dictatorship that would control how much money and possessions each person has and would be permitted to have is the evangelical Christian ethic of unselfishly serving and meeting the needs of one another. I would comment that Mr. Rifkin has described the end of the world because that's exactly the kind of government that will exist when the Antichrist takes control and leadership of the world. Unfortunately, there's very little evidence that most modern evangelicals themselves are any longer committed to such an ethic. We give so much more evidence of following the worldly trends of our day than of setting, confronting, or modifying them. In the light of that fact, it's difficult for most of us to identify with Jesus' warning about not to worry about basic necessities. We're well-fed, we're well-clothed, we're well-fixed in terms of all the necessities as well as, as many things that are totally unnecessary. Now, as I read those verses, what was the phrase that Jesus repeated over and over again? Look at the passage. Do not worry. It appears three times. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34. And in verses 27 and 28, he asks questions that are built around the issue of us being worried. So that is the heart and the soul of the passage. The Lord is calling for us to cease from worrying. Now, I guess all of us have to admit that worry is a part of life, isn't it? It's a pastime for many people. Uh, it occupies their thinking for a great portion of their daily waking hours. However, worry is a very dangerous item. It takes a severe toll on people. But far beyond its psychological effect, is the effect is the fact that the Bible tells us that for the believer, worry is a sin. Why? Because worry is the equivalent of saying, God, I know you mean well by what you've promised, but I'm just not sure you can really do it. I'm not sure you can pull it off. So worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. And yet we do it all the time, don't we? The famous playwright William Ng once said, worry is interest paid on trouble before it's due. <laughs> Arthur Summers Roche said, worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. One unknown writer Put it this way, worry is faith in the negative form, trust in the unpleasant, assurance of disaster, and belief in defeat. And then Mr. Anonymous said what I think is my favorite quote about worry. He said, 
Worry is wasting today's time, cluttering up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. But I guess if you're going to worry and you're going to try to legitimize it, there's no better way to do it than to say, well, I'm not worrying about extravagant things. I'm just worrying about where I'm going to get my next meal, my next glass of water, something to wear. But for the Christian, even that is forbidden. There's no excuse for us to worry about even those basic commodities of life. For the believer, it's sinful and foolish. Why? Because that's God's area. He has staked claim on it. It's one of the things you learn if you listen to Jesus all through the Sermon on the Mount, and in fact, all through the Gospels. And if you listen to the epistles, which are the inspired commentaries on the Gospels, one thing you learn is that God does not want his children to be preoccupied with the mundane, mundane passing things of this world. He wants us to set our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. He wants us to store up our treasure in heaven. He wants us to seek first his kingdom. And in order to free us to do that, he says, don't worry about all that other stuff. I'll take care of that. That is the basic principle of spiritual life, that we are not earthbound people. We are to just give that part to God, and then we are free to live in the heavenly places where our citizenship is. How foolish to be worried about material things. But that's precisely what people worry about. Now, Jesus could be talking about rich people here, because the same people who have all the luxuries in verses 19 to 24 are often worried about the necessities here in verses 25 to 34. Sometimes rich people worry about necessities, and that's why they stockpile their money. So they can have a safety net, a huge monster safety net for the future. Sometimes that's why they stash it all away, so they'll be ready if everything falls apart. They want to be ready to have, to still have the funds to buy what they need if everything else falls apart. That's the whole mindset behind the people known as doomsday preppers. Uh, the people who store up all kinds of food and possessions and safeguards to allow them to survive if the in, event of the total collapse, the total eclapse, uh, collapse of the economy occurs or another world war occurs or whatever supposed event they expect to occur someday that's going to require the use of all the things and the money that they've stored up in advance. They even store up guns and ammunition because they recognize that in the case of such an event, other people will be so desperate that they will have to defend their own little stockpile. <laughs> and so they buy guns and ammo to make sure no one else will be able to steal their food and supplies. And folks, I know believers who have been caught up into that kind of thinking. At its core, that is a repudiation of what Jesus is teaching here in verses 25 to 34. Because they are worrying that God will not provide sufficiently to meet their needs during such a time. It's one thing to be prudent and save for the future. It's another to adopt a mentality which says, I'm going to hoard and stockpile resources now, and I'm not going to share with others during that possible doomsday event. It's too bad for them if they weren't smart enough to prepare like me. 
If you've ever been tempted to think like that, read this passage and then ask yourself, would Jesus say that such an attitude should characterize a believer? So rich people can worry about necessities. And so do poor people. But poor people worry about them in a different way. They worry about where to get the necessities they need. But they can't do anything to relieve that worry. Rich people can at least stockpile, but poor people can worry about it and not be able to do anything about it to alleviate it. And so I think Jesus is primarily directing these words at poor people. But they also encompass the wealthy because anyone can worry about having the necessities of life at some point, whether now or in the future. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, poor people should worry. How do they know where their next meal is going to come from? How do they know they're going to have breakfast tomorrow morning? How do they know they're going to have shelter and clothes? But Jesus directly says, you're not to worry about that. That's God's area of concern. And Jesus gives this command three times. Do not worry. And thus he gives us three reasons why worrying about the necessities of life is wrong. In verses 25 to 30, he says that worry is being unfaithful to your father. In verses 31 to 33, he says that worry is uncharacteristic of your faith. And in verse 34, he says that worry is unwise in light of your future. And we will start on those next week. Because there's no way that we can legitimately even introduce that. Any comments or questions on this? Yes, Bart. Back in he would open up his Every time he, I'd say it in his language, he says, you worry, you die. <laughs> <laughs> you don't worry, you die. <laughs> Why worry? <laughs> yeah. I can still hear it today. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. Frank, your turn. <laughs> 